When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jerome Powell has made it pretty clear that we're going to be seeing more rate cuts in the future. We have Michael Burry of the big short fame saying that he's found the next market bubble, and that's in index funds. And then, of course, I teased this in the last video. I have a $2,000 deposit here for the month of September. I'm going to be showing how I've been able to get into a situation where I'm able to deposit and, and fund my account so aggressively. And then last but not least, lots of community questions. I'm going to be answering your guys' questions and lots of follow-up from the previous episode. So I hope you guys stick around. I think it'll be a fun episode. First, let's jump into the portfolio and see how it's doing real quick. You can see over all time, I'm at uh, all-time highs with my gains right now, $5,800 in gains. The portfolio value, I just put in another $2,000 and it's up to almost $53,000. Just continually adding to this pretty aggressively, guys. I've been working on budgeting, trying to put as much money as I can into this thing. 32% money-weighted returns, doing really good overall. Now, if I go to the past week here, earned dividends, $49.96. That's a lot of dividends in a five-day period. That's five market days, $49, so about 10 bucks a day. And then the one-month view here, Earned dividends, $188.87. For a 30-day time period, I don't think I've ever seen it go, go quite that high. The dividends are ramping up. I'm earning more and more every single month. That's not the picture that would be painted, though, if I go to how I did last month. The month of August, I had quite a bit of a drop of the income. So I had $114 as opposed to July when I had $166. Now, this doesn't concern me at all. The reason that this graph goes up and down is simply because of scheduling. Some companies, they simply distribute the money that they're paying to shareholders at different time period. More companies pay on December than they do January, for instance, and that's why we see this big drop here. And likewise, more companies are paying on July than they pay on August. That's just how it works, and it's, it's not a big deal. Overall, the trend is going up. If I go over to this graph here, you can see that this these blue lines are my average income. And even though last month was more than this month, the average continues to go up. I'm continuing to see that trend. Now I'll go ahead and quickly show my Roth IRA as well. I have a video on this in the history. I can't remember what episode number it is, but it has Roth IRA in the title. It's the only one that does. So if I go over to the Roth IRA here, it has $7,300. It actually went up quite a bit. So just in the past month, up almost $200 and you know, it's earning dividends. It's the same strategy, but it's implemented differently. This is only through ETS. One thing I did was I lowered the, the number of bonds from 40% to 20. Um, some of that has to do with the news with the Fed continually lowering rate. I think that dividend income will, will continue to outperform fixed income if the rate keeps getting lowered. And that's part of the reason, but I also just have such a long timeline with it being 59 and a half until I'm able to actually use this money that it doesn't really matter what happens in the short term. And over very long periods of time, equity seem to do a little bit better. Now it's 20% bonds, 80% stocks. Just like my primary portfolio, my taxable one, this one again is all ETFs. Every single holding in this portfolio feeds me in cash month over month, quarter over quarter, that type of thing. I still love that strategy of constantly always getting income that gets reinvested. And as you can see, it's performing really well. 
Now, some people have noticed, if I go over to my activity feed here, this is in my main portfolio, $2,000 deposit put in just a couple days ago. And they noticed, man, how are you able to deposit this type of money, right? Uh, my story is a little bit different on this too than a lot of YouTubers where, um, you know, it's it, this isn't a rags to riches type of thing where um, I was working at Wendy's and then I started a YouTube channel and now I'm, you know, teaching, investing and and making a lot of money. I've been fortunate enough to be in a situation where I've been able to make pretty decent money, I think, especially for my age for quite a quite a long time now. And part of that is what I think I naturally was inclined to do. My my normal interests in life seem to align with things that happen to be very good with market value, things that uh, employers were looking for and that can offer a lot of value to companies at the same time. I'm not saying all of this is a result of decisions as much of a lot of circumstantial luck. Now, I say luck just because a thing that I found out I was interested in early on was programming, doing development. And so I've done a lot of development and application design, and that's something that employers value a lot. If you're good at front end and back end development, if you're able to do full stack development, if you're a really well-rounded developer that's been doing it for years and has a lot of experience, that's something that employers are, are looking for right now. I've worked on different projects like the one I can show on screen here that are um, different applications that I've built and either worked on with different companies like uh, Skull Candy Headphones or this one in particular was purchased by Gamers is the name of the company. They're the owner of Dot Esports, which is a esports uh, esports journal website. And these are all different projects I've been able to do outside of my day job, outside of my full-time job, just in my free time. And that's allowed me to save up more money so that I'm able to put more money down on my home or deposit more money into my portfolio. Now, I'm not saying that development is the only job that has demand out there um there's there's so many different careers you can go into that have uh that have a lot of demand that have a lot of security there's healthcare is a great one during recessions it has a lot more security than most jobs um also like sales and marketing are two really big big uh fields right now that have a lot of demand people that are able to advertise products and get new customers and people that are able to sell products are very valuable to companies right now for people that are interested in development in particular, I will say that I've had a, a lot of people coming to me with different products that they want me to sponsor. And I've turned down, I, I will say, over 50 of them by now. Uh, so I'm not trying to push products on people. One of them that I did sign up to become an affiliate for because I feel okay letting people go to this website is Pluralsight. And the reason that I'm okay with letting you guys use this and, and being an affiliate of them is because I've used them before. And I think that they offer a pretty good, a pretty good deal here. This is for people specifically interested in technology. They have software development courses, IT, security, information, all these different things that you have these professional courses they put together. It's similar to YouTube. You can find some of this information for free. They just have, I think, a lot more organized. The people that do these courses are usually... Uh, they, they've worked in the field a lot longer. A lot of them are employees from Microsoft and, and different things at high levels teaching these courses. I've used one in particular. I've, I've done the Angular one and some JavaScript courses, and I found them very informational. There's a link in the description if anybody wants to take a stab at this type of stuff. They have a, uh, a, a trial so you can see if it's something that you like. It's a 10-day free trial. Just be sure to cancel before the 11th day, or they charge you the monthly subscription which if you look at it, it's not too bad. 35 bucks a month for all this information, $200 a year, which if you compare that to college, that's about one and a half textbooks. So I think the value that these companies, these online companies that uh, are able to teach these different tech skills is, is very valuable, especially in a world I think that's 
moving a lot to technology. Even if you don't want to specifically study development, they have a lot of things that will make you more valuable in your workplace. I wouldn't recommend signing up for the monthly or annual until you've done just a 10-day free trial. You may as well try out the trial first and see if it's something that you think will be worth it. But that's something to look at. If you guys are wondering what fields are going that pay a lot, development's one of them. Uh, I wouldn't limit yourself to only thinking that these type of fields are the only ones that pay well. There's a lot, I, I promise you, I've worked in companies where I've been able to see the, the payroll building out applications for other positions. Lots of them pay well outside of development. There is a lot of demand for a lot of different uh, uh, skills in different fields, and there's a lot of different ways to make money. So don't pigeonhole yourself into doing something that you don't enjoy uh, just to make money. Because if you don't enjoy development, you don't want to be doing it for the rest of your life. You want to find something that you do enjoy. I enjoy development. This is a good starting point. I'll also point out, this is, it takes hundreds, if not thousands of hours to get to the point where you, you make good money and have lots of demand. Uh, don't go in thinking this is just like a you know couple weeks thing and then you'll be getting job offers left and right. That's the input I have as far as what I do with my day job outside of all this YouTube stuff, outside of all this stuff to make money. Uh, I do a lot of development, um, build applications for a living and I've been enjoying doing that. All right, so enough of that. Let's talk about some news now. The first thing I wanna talk about is Michael Burry. Uh, this guy, he's the one that uh, he was featured by Christian Bales, the one who played him in The Big Short, this movie about the 2009 financial crisis where they go and explain the small amount of people that bet against and profited from the housing market, the housing market collapse. Now, Michael Burry, he's a pretty interesting guy. I've read a little bit about his life. I've read a couple different books that, that feature him and part of it. And he lost his left eye when he was two years old. He had cancer and part of removing that cancer, he lost his, his left eye and it was replaced with the glass eye. And what that did throughout his life was made it so that any kind of social interaction was very difficult to have. He was bullied about it, teased about it in school, all the way through high school and so on. It made just forming normal relationships that you and I take for granted made it something that was extremely difficult for him. And what that did was forced him to live inside of his head a lot of the time. And he started to enjoy that, just thinking to himself, you know, kind of talking to himself, just being by himself all the time. And he, as a doctor, he went to medical school and graduated as a doctor. He was going into neurology and he found out that he had a big, that he had a big interest in investing and his investing interest, which began as kind of a side thing, started to take precedence to where he actually thought about it more and, and did more into that than he actually did being a medical professional. He'd stay up all night uh, writing about investing on these different forums, seeing his predictions and his reasonings why. And then he would go to work the next day. And there's even stories of him like collapsing in the middle of a surgery because he was so tired that he fell asleep in the middle of it, uh, being one of the doctors performing a surgery. So he got to the point where he wanted to to do that full time that he wanted to do the investing part full time because that's where his his passion was now he found out that a lot of people were making money with his predictions that when he started his hedge fund he actually got calls right away and people funded it and bought parts of his hedge fund right away because they had been listening to the things that he was writing in those blogs the whole time and making a lot of money off of his predictions. And they said that they wanted to continue making money off of his predictions. And that's where his hedge fund started. Now, on this news specifically, him saying that there's a bubble in index funds, a lot of people have kind of discredited this, saying, 
well, he was right about the 2009 financial crisis and he got a movie made after him. So it probably just got to his head and now he thinks that he can predict the future and everything, right? But I think that they're discrediting him a little bit because they don't know too much about his history. When he started his hedge fund, I think it was in 2000, for five years, from 2000 to 2005, the S&P 500 over that time period dropped about 6%. In that time, Michael Burry and his specific bets that he made, that he was the one guy running this hedge fund, the only one making any of the bets. His hedge fund returned about 220% during that time period. So he returned 220% while the S&P 500 returned minus 6%. It didn't matter if the market went up or down. If it went down years, he would return positively. If it went up years, he would return even more positively than, than the stock market. Now, at that time, all he was doing was buying companies that he thought were severely undervalued because of bad news and different things around them. After a while, he was interested in the housing market because it just continued to go up at an incredible pace. And he looked into it and found that there was some huge faults with it. And this was back in, I think, about 2004, 2005. What I want to do is go ahead and play a scene from the big short that shows Christian Bale playing him and him doing his research on this. 95, 30 days late, 60 days late. They, they, they paid on time. Uh, they're paying on time. Another 30 days late, LTV 95, LTV 90. They, they caught up on their Sixty payments. 60 days late. Jesus, Jesus. Well, I think we've won 10. I've never heard of that. 30 days late, man. Yeah. It was seven rated just. Yeah, it's just. It's just. It's just. It's just. It's Michael, how are you, guy? Lawrence, I found something really interesting. Great, Michael. Whenever you find something interesting, we all tend to make money. What stock are you about? No, 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 no stocks. I want to, I want to short the housing market. Now, I'll say this scene, from what I've read, is pretty accurate. The only thing that's not accurate with it is. Uh, it wasn't like a couple days that he spent reading this specific documentation, the contracts of these mortgages. He spent months reading through every single nitty gritty detail of them. At one point, he says that he was confident that he knew more about them specifically than anyone else in the world because he doesn't think anybody else had read through them as much detailed and as much as he has aside from the lawyers that wrote them. So he was extremely confident in his bet. He knew that given the time the teaser rates were up for these mortgages and they actually had to start paying their adjustable rates on them, that the amount of defaults was going to spike and that he was going to make money. The investors that uh, he had in his hedge fund did not believe him. They thought that he was good at stock picking, but picking out macroeconomic trends like the housing market was something they were not excited about. And it caused a lot of his investors to be extremely angry at him to the point where they wanted their money out and he had them locked up long term. So even though he made them about $700 million, a lot of them uh, were very upset with them even after making a profit. But my point here is that Michael Burry is somebody that he's not just glibly saying something. This isn't just an offhand thing that he'd say. He's a guy that really studies out things before he makes judgments and makes bets on them. I want to go into specifics about what he's saying about the passive investment bubble, so to speak. Here's an article from Bloomberg that examines some of Michael Burry's concerns about index funds. And I'll go through these. They're broken down and they're just different bulletin points. One of them is index funds and price discovery. He brings up that when you have a lot of money just being thrown into these index funds, like if you buy the S&P 500, you don't know all 500 companies you're buying. 
you're not really looking at the companies, what they sell, and doing any kind of analysis based on them. And he's saying that price setting that you normally do when you do security analysis isn't happening with index funds, that a lot of dumb money just goes into these index funds, buys whatever companies it buys. Um, He says, quote, this is very much like the bubble in synthetic asset-backed CDOs before the great financial crisis, in that price setting was not done by fundamental security level analysis, but by massive capital flows based on noble approved models of risk that proved to be untrue. That's a lot to unpack in that paragraph, but he's pretty much saying that, you know, a lot of this money is going into these index funds. People aren't doing any kind of security level analysis on the things that they're buying when they buy an index. And this massive amounts of capital that's moving into it is based off of a noble approved or noble winning models, like modern portfolio theory is one of them that's really popular among all the different robo advisors. That's where you have like four or five index funds. You kind of weight them based on your level of risk. And then that's your portfolio. So he's saying that that doesn't allow for any kind of price discovery. Another thing he highlights is liquidity risk. This one is a little bit more complicated, but in this, he pretty much says that there's a a number of companies that only have a few million dollars traded to them every single day, but they have hundreds of billions of dollars indexed to them through these index funds. So he thinks, I mean, he says right here, the theater keeps getting more crowded, but the exit door is the same as it always was. So he has concerns if, if a large amount of people want to take their money out all at once, that might create some liquidity problems. So that's another concern he highlights. And then he reiterates all of this at the end. It won't end well. He says, This fundamental concept is the same one that resulted in the market meltdowns in 2008. However, I just don't know what the timeline will be. Like most bubbles, the longer it goes on, the worse the crash will be. There you have it. That's his breakdown of index funds. It's a pretty grim look at it. Now, to be fair, Michael Burry is not the first person to express concerns with index investing. A lot of different investors have expressed concerns like Howard Marks and other people have before, um, saying that you know, pretty much the same concerns that Michael Burry has. But Vanguard has been releasing information trying to counter this, trying to fight against these concerns. Vanguard is also one of the biggest creators of these funds that are being indexed. And even though they charge these tiny fees of like 0.08%, 0.06%, some of them even 0.01% fees yearly, that might seem like they're they're doing that for people. It's a, it's a way for them to just give back to everybody's have these really low fees. Those 0.01% of hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars under management is a fortune. So they are making an absolute fortune on those small fees. What they've done is they've traded um, small amounts of money that they charge a lot for, for charging a little bit for massive amounts of money under management. But regardless, Vanguard has given information trying to fight back against this uh, these concerns about indexing. This advisor article here I have on the screen, I'll highlight a few things they say. They say despite its popularity, indexing plays a relatively small role in the price discovery process. They say, in fact, price discovery is driven by active market participants, such as high-frequency traders, hedge funds, and individual investors. So they're saying that even though index investing is becoming more popular, price discovery is still being done by hedge funds and individual investors. And more of this, they said, index assets under management have grown from almost zero in the 1980s to about 30% of registered funds assets globally as of 2017. So 30% of the money in all these companies is from index funds now. This continues on. 
They said that we found the total trading volume has actually trended up in recent years and that indexing strategies account for minimal amounts of that activity. In fact, the overwhelming majority of trading activity can be attributed to market participants engaged in various forms of active management. So that's kind of what I'm doing is this more active management of my portfolio. Um, it's a very passive form of active management, but I have gone ahead and selected the specific companies I want to buy. That's not really indexing right there. Now, you kind of get both sides here. You have Michael Burry from The Big Short saying, you know, he sees all these really big problems with it. You have institutions like Vanguard that say there's not really anything to worry about right now. So up to you guys to decide what you really think of this. As far as I'm concerned, I think it lies somewhere in the middle. I don't think that things are quite as drastic as Michael Burry's making them out to be right now. But I also don't think that they have as minimal of an impact as Vanguard would have us believe. I think that that much money being put in the markets that's just market-weighted money without any kind of analysis has to have a pretty big impact. For my portfolio, even though this is an index fund, almost every company that I hold is a large cap company. Michael Burry is saying that more money is flowing into these companies and less money is flowing into mid-size or small cap companies. He thinks index investors are inflating the prices of these companies that we're buying. So interesting nonetheless, something and I'll, I'll keep watching his claims on it and see how it develops. All right, so let's move on to the next piece of news here. This is Powell talking about the U.S. economy. The United States economy has continued to perform well uh, and is in, is in a good place. In fact, we're well into the 11th year of this expansion, uh, which began back in the second half of 2009. Um, and the outlook, the most likely outlook for our economy remains a favorable one, um, with moderate growth, a strong labor market, and inflation moving back up close to our 2% goal. All that said, there are significant risks, uh, and we've been monitoring those, including, as you mentioned, slowing global growth, uh, uncertainty around trade policy and also persistently low inflation. So we're not forecasting or expecting <clears throat> a recession. As I mentioned, uh, incoming data for the United States suggests that the most likely outcome outlook for the United States economy is still moderate growth, a strong labor market, and inflation continuing to move back up. I okay, so he says that they're not forecasting a recession, unlike, I think, everybody else in 2020 is kind of forecasting a recession saying oh we just passed the yield curve Jerome Powell there saying that that's not what he believes is going to be happening now the Fed as many of you predicted has made it pretty clear that they're going to keep dropping interest rates which is pretty interesting because when I bought my my home in uh, like just a couple years ago I got it at a pretty good interest rate. And I thought, man, we're never going to see these interest rates in my lifetime again, right? Because after the great financial crisis and they went to uh, almost zero effectively, they creeped back up a little bit. That's around when I bought my home. Actually get to a point where interest rates are back down below where they were previously. So it's an interesting thing to have happen to our economy. What I will say as far as my portfolio... Uh, what do you do when interest rates are going down? What sectors perform well? What ones don't do well? First of all, fixed income. So this bonds pie here, even though I've made pretty good money, the current bonds that you hold will become more valuable as interest rates drop. 
but future bonds that you buy will yield less. So they're, they're worth less. So um, typically, if you're just starting your portfolio, you want to have less bonds in interest rates and more dividend yield, yielding stocks. Because as the fixed income continues to decline, the income from dividend companies will become more valuable. More money will go into those dividend companies because they will have better yields. And that's what's happening all around the world right now is dividend companies are paying a lot better than most banks do. Another sector that typically gets hurt when interest rates go down or when economies decline is the finance sector. Lending goes down, people, they they buy less things. They, they don't get as big of loans for cars or homes or anything like that. And that hurts banks, that hurts the finance sector. And so you can look at that both ways. You can say, oh, I don't want any money in that sector right now, or I want to start piling more money into that as the sector gets hurt so that, you know, I'm buying low and when it goes back up after interest rates rise, I'll be able to make money off of that. But what I've taken from this is in my Roth IRA, I used to have 40% bonds. Now I have 20%. I want less exposure to fixed income. I want more exposure to dividend paying equity. So that's exactly what I've done. And I think that that will result good. I think as, as interest rates continue to decline, people will be looking for that dividend yield. So that's what I'm planning on doing. All right, let's move on to some questions. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. That's Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. You can also message me on my Instagram and Twitter found in the description of this video. First question is from Jensen. He says, Hey, Joseph, after watching your videos and following your portfolio, something caught my attention. I remember in one of your videos, you mentioned that you don't invest in companies like Philip Morris because you don't want to invest in companies that provide products that are dangerous to human health. Cigarettes and alcohol can obviously destroy people's lives and health, but a few companies in particular aren't included in that same category. With soda being the leading cause of diabetes, heart disease, circulatory disease, and more, I wonder why soda companies are a worthwhile investment, whereas tobacco and alcohol are not. Being a man of principle, what justification are there for investing in soda, which is almost equally damaging to human health? I look forward to your reply. All right, Jensen, I think that this is a, a pretty good question because it does highlight some parallels between the two, tobacco and Coca-Cola. Like you pointed out, soda being a leading cause of diabetes, heart disease, and circulatory disease. One part of this, I'm not a doctor, so this is just my opinion um, for whatever it's worth, but my thoughts are that there is some distinction between these two products, that Coca-Cola is a sugary drink. That's really what it is. You're drinking a liquid that has a lot of corn syrup in it. And if you drink enough sugar, it's going to cause inflammation and diabetes and heart disease and circulatory disease. We studied that. We know about that. But Coca-Cola is just one part of that issue. I look at it as this whole ensemble of factors working together that people drive to work, when they're at work, they sit down at a desk and they spend eight hours there on a computer and they sip Coca-Cola or whatever sugary drink they're drinking the whole time. And then they drive home from work in busy traffic and all this mentally tasking work they've done. They want to just sit home on the couch on their phone and with their TV on once they get home. That combined with pumping sugar into your system all throughout the day yeah, it's going to lead to it's going to lead to diabetes, heart disease and circulatory disease. But I don't think the Coca-Cola in and of itself singularly is a thing causing all these problems. If people were really active all throughout the day, they worked out, they ate health, they ate healthy otherwise, they didn't just eat fast food or whatever junk they get at work, but they lived otherwise healthy lifestyles and then they enjoyed a Coca-Cola drink three or four times a week. I don't think we'd be seeing nearly any diabetes and heart disease that we see caused from these sodas. So my opinion is that 
Coca-Cola is one factor of many contributing to all these chronic diseases. Tobacco is a little bit different. I don't think the consensus is from the medical field that tobacco is just one part of this unhealthy lifestyle, right? That it's one part of this thing. I think that they're saying tobacco in and of itself without anything else contributing to it. If you just use that product, it's going to cause these different health problems. And so that's not news to smokers. I mean, it's it's literally, they have warnings on every single pack of cigarettes or anything tobacco related. They have medical warnings right on it. So I have nothing against if people want to smoke or do anything with that. I don't care what products people choose to use, but I do think that tobacco is different than Coca-Cola and that tobacco singularly in and of itself causes these health issues. Coca-Cola, I think, is just uh, kind of the one that's focused on right now because a lot of people enjoy sodas. But if it wasn't the sodas, it would be something else. It would be cheese. It would be uh, fried foods. It would be something else that would be causing these issues. I think that just having too much sugar in general in our diets is is part of it. So um, pinning it exactly on Coca-Cola, I don't think, is actually the problem. All right. So the next question is from Dan. He says, hey, thanks for taking my question. So this is the one. Dan's the one that I answered his question about budgeting in the last episode. He says, I guess I worded it wrong. I was trying to find out how your wife viewed your family's budget. Is she 100% on board or does it take some convincing and compromise? I asked because it takes some compromise for us. I'd like to save more and she wants to have more wiggle room. We are doing okay, but I feel she puts up with it rather than being all in. All right, Dan, you are right that uh, I did talk just specifically about the mechanics of my budget, how we go about doing it. I didn't really talk about my wife's opinion on the budget or how we work that out between each other. So uh, does it take some convincing and compromise? I mean, this is a marriage we're talking about here. I don't know many subjects that don't take some convincing or compromise, especially money. I read an article, and I completely agree with their study that they did, that they found that money has moved to the top spot of causing issues in marriages, that money took number one. And that doesn't surprise me. It's a very difficult thing when one of you is working for money or both of you is working for money, and then you have different ideas of how to spend that money or what to do with it. It becomes very difficult. Um, What I will say is that if you're investing and you're saving money and you're doing this right, it should alleviate different stresses in your marriage, should make things more enjoyable for you because you know that you have money saved, that you're not living paycheck to paycheck, that you have your future secure. And all of that should relieve financial anxieties and stress that come with uh, immaturity and bad decision making with money. So if investing and saving is causing more stress and more problems in your marriage, there's some issues that need to be addressed there. Now, as far as specific tips on things that, uh, like with me and my wife, we're pretty different when it comes to finances. I run a YouTube channel about finances and investing news and all this stuff because I'm so interested in it. My wife has almost no interest in in the finance world. She's just not interested in it at all. Uh, She likes shopping, spending money like most women do and most people do in general, but she's not really into the whole finance thing as much as I am. Now, that does take some compromise because she doesn't care what I'm doing with the money or or anything like that. It's just how much money do we have to spend. So what I do is I try to make it so that we're not diminishing our time here now and we're improving our time in the future. That's a very difficult thing to balance because I see a trend of a lot of people online, especially in one community comes to mind, the FIRE community, Financial Independence Retire Early. There's a community of people that they're working so hard to retire early that I think a lot of times they end up sacrificing the now, that they're not really enjoying their life now. 
And I turn uh, 30 years old in just a few days. And it makes me realize that we're only here for a short amount of time. So it is good to enjoy some of your money now. It might be good to listen to your wife and, you know, enjoy some of that money now. But uh, if you want tips on how to get her more on board with the way that you're seeing things, that's part of uh, getting her excited, seeing the end vision, what you envision your life to be like, where um, you're able to get to a point where you're not going to be away for so long, that you can be home and spend more time with her because you freed up your time. You've invested in now, you're not having to work for all of your money. If you explain the whole vision, that the whole purpose of investing and saving money is so that you guys can spend more time together, so that you can go on vacations more, that you can travel more, that you can go fly out to Europe or, or you know, to California beaches or go on cruises and do things together, that puts it in perspective of what your end goal is. Instead of just saying, hey, I just want to put more money in this obscure fund that you have no idea what it is and hopefully it will do well. Try to explain the end vision in terms that will be appealing to her and she might be more inclined to follow along with that journey. So that would be what I would do is a lot of this is selling the dream that you have and then also making it enjoyable in the meantime. So um, those are my ideas of how I would go about doing it. But I think it's also important to listen to her because if you are investing too aggressively and you're really just not enjoying anything right now, I, you know, there's some balance there. You might want to enjoy some of your money now. She might really have some good perspective there. So I would listen to her input as well. And yeah, that compromise part definitely comes into play. All right, I have time for one more question. This one's from Ryan. He says, hey, Joseph, love the show. You're doing an excellent job producing content. Uh, thank you for that, Ryan. He says, I watch your segment about the ETF pie, which I think aligns with my capabilities better than following individual securities. One of the things I love most about dividend investing is that I feel that I'm getting a deal when share prices happen to go down because it gives me an opportunity to buy in at a better yield. Is this the same with ETFs? Do the payout of the same absolute dividend amounts when the ETF price falls, thereby giving a higher yield, or do they somehow control the dividend yield at a fixed value, then balance their underlying securities to keep that constant in the sim- in some way? Sorry if that's confusing. I was looking for clarification and the financial internet was no help. Thanks, Ryan. Um, to answer your question, it's the former, not the latter. These ETFs, they don't keep a specific yield and then adjust their securities to have that yield. That's usually not how they're indexed or how they're created. Uh, They just hold those companies and whatever those individual companies, whatever the aggregate of all of those are, whatever that yields is what that ETF yields. So I think ETFs are a, I mean, even aside from all these concerns with Michael Burry, there's not much you can do about that. That's how the system is right now. I think ETFs are a fantastic solution for people that are more inclined to not want to pick individual stocks. And you still get the same outcome if stock prices fall, but dividend companies keep paying their same dividends, the ETF will work the same way where you get a higher yield, you're buying in at a reduced price. So um, yes, to answer your question, you still get that benefit when you invest using ETFs rather than individual stocks. Thanks for listening. That's going to be it for me for today. Uh, Be sure to try to like the video, hit the like button if you haven't already. Apparently that's supposed to help with YouTube's algorithm. I don't really know if it does, but we can try it out. Uh, Other than that, remember that this whole show is on all the different podcast services as well. I upload it at the exact same time. Um, And to subscribe if you haven't already subscribed, I'll see you guys in the next episode.